With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is ACAST Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm John Gibson and this is Gibbo's Corner. This is my chance to take you behind the headlines of some of the greatest Newcastle United stories. Thanks for listening and please remember to like and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm Andrew Musgrove. Time for another episode of Gibbo's Corner. And this one is a bit of a special one. We're going to take a trip back down memory lane, as we usually do, into the mid-90s. Um, and we're going to speak about Kevin Keegan and the entertainers and the side that he built alongside Sir John Hall and talk about the players that came in, the superstars that came in, the money that was spent and also the stories behind the transfers. How did Newcastle United manage to sign some of the world's greatest players? Uh, John, you're going to start with actually a name that probably doesn't come into that category as, as some of the world's greatest <laughs> yeah. players. Yeah. Nonetheless, a massive character, a massive player Um and yeah, just a player that for Newcastle United fans will last long in the memory. Absolutely. I mean, every revolution's got to start somewhere and you start small and get big, you build up. And you've got to remember at the time that Kevin Keegan was about to, to build the entertainers, Newcastle were on the verge of going into the old third division. They were on the verge of, of doing a Sunderland going all the way down the drink. Um, and therefore, first things first, they had to put the dam up and stop this from happening. And Kevin Keegan's early signing, one of his early signings that made the huge difference was a guy called Brian Kilkline, uh, who was remembered with huge affection from fans of that era right away through to today. He was an amazing character. I mean, Keegan said afterwards that, that he was the most important signing of all the entertainers because he turned the tide initially. The tide was flowing against Newcastle United. He helped turn the tide the, the right way, and then that having happened, Keegan was able to build on the foundation and get all the great names in. And this was an, just an amazing character. I mean... For a start, he, he had the, the wild hair and the, the, the little beard and the moustache. He looked like one of the three musketeers. He was a, an eccentric, he was wild, he was ferocious on the pitch. Obviously nicknamed Killer, 
not Jerry Lee Lewis, the killer, but this was Newcastle United's killer. Um, he came with a pedigree, he came late in his career. He'd uh, been Coventry's uh, skipper when they won the FA Cup uh, at Wembley um, in 1987. He signed for us in February 1992, just after Keegan had become the manager, Sir John's takeover, initially on loan and then for £250,000. It's quite amazing, really, because he only made 29 starts in his whole of his career. He only made 29 starts for Newcastle, so yet became a legendary figure in the history of Newcastle United, a bit like Tony Green. His Tony Green is a Newcastle United legend, having played roughly about the same number of games. With Tony, it was because of injury. With Brian, it was because his legs were gone. It was very late in his career when he came here. You mentioned there that... Brian's rival kind of saw the tide change mm. for Newcastle. What do you think Kevin actually really meant by that? What was it that that it, in terms of that the signings coming in, or was it the terms of the attitude in the dressing room? What do you think yeah. he meant by that? Uh, I mean, first and foremost, he, he, he knew he inherited a side that wasn't only not in the first division; it was hurtling out the bottom of the second division. And like anything at all, if you're going to stop a slide, you've got to stop the goals going in first and foremost before you start thinking about scoring them. Because that was Ozzy Ordele's trouble who was performing. We'd score three, but we'd let in four. And that's why we were almost bottom of the second division, which is why he went for a centre-half. He also realised, Keegan, very, very quickly that he had a very young side. He had some very talented kids like Lee Clark and... and uh, Steve Watson and Howie, who was to go on and play for England, etc., etc. But there were kids, and he needed a a leader on the field, and b an organizer on the field. Kevin could do it Monday to Friday, but he needed that, and they were the two strengths of Killer. Um, and Killer said when he first come up here and did his first day's training, he was brought up, met everybody, went out to do his training. He said, "Oh." The first team must have a day off today. I'm training with the youth team. And in fact, he was training with the first team. But they were that young, he actually thought he was training with the youth team. And as he said, they were terrific kids. It went on, a lot of them, and played for England at one level or another. There was a terrific bunch of kids there, but there was no organisation. So from one leader to another, uh, Rob Lee's the next name yeah. that is on the radar. Yeah. Um, obviously, everyone kind of remembers the story, and it's, there's, there's some debate whether this is the actual <laughs> true story. And I'm sure you guys listening will know exactly what I'm talking about. It is the story that Kevin Keegan told yes. Rob Lee that Newcastle <laughs> was closer to London than Middlesbrough. Yeah, it, and that is absolutely true. It was September '92 when when Rob came to us, and I remember KK telling me at the time he, he thought Rob had spent, he thought he was far too comfortable. He was with Charlton Athletic. He'd, he had the same mates as he'd been to at school. He'd been brought up at Charlton throughout the club through his whole time there. And he thought he'd become very cosy, very comfortable, and it was about time he spread his wings if he was going to become successful. And Middlesbrough, it's true enough, although it isn't as stupid as it sounds from Rob's point of view, it's true enough that um, Middlesbrough had been in and he didn't fancy going to Middlesbrough. And so when KK came in, he said, look, I'm a Cockney lad, etc., etc. I love my roots. Uh, I'm happy down here. I don't want to go all the way up north. That's why I've already turned down Middlesbrough, etc. Uh, it's too far away from London. 
and KK never wanted to lose a choice. Actually, Newcastle is closer to London than Middlesbrough is. And that is not as stupid as it sounds because KK told me, it's gone into folklore, of course it has, but KK told me to. What he was talking about is that if you were in Middlesbrough or living in that sort of area and playing for Middlesbrough, you would have to get a, a taxi to Darlington Station, then a train from Darlington Station to London, etc., etc. Where flying direct from Newcastle Airport down to Heathrow in an hour, you were quicker than on a three-hour train journey down to London. So it was true that you were quick. It was easier to get to London, but it wasn't closer. But uh, poor old Rob's had to live with that all his life. The thick London had thought that Newcastle was closer than Middlesbrough. But what a servant. Um, Sir John Hall classes him as his greatest ever signing. Yes, he does. I mean, Sir John had to write the the checks, which made it very important and made it very crucial to him. And we know all about that with Mike Ashley signing today's checks. And and John always said that for £700,000 value for money, years given to the club, that Rob Lee was the best signing as far as John was concerned, of the era. And considering that Newcastle smashed their their club record virtually month by month during the the entertainers' era, all the way up to a world record 15 million for Wobbly's great mate Alan Shearer, um, the value for money of this guy was terrific. And I remember... uh, when he signed, I remember saying to Kevin, because I was part of the Magpie group that um, was Sir John's group, so you you had a bigger access, if you like, to the manager than just being a local reporter. And what made you go for this guy in particular? He said, and, well, when I looked at him, you've got to bear in mind that at that time, Robley was an out-and-out winger. He, he played as a winger. He said, I saw a lot of Steve Stone in him, which is... Ironically, a Geordie lad who then, much later on, if you remember, went on, went on to our coaching staff. But he said, I saw a lot of Steve Stone in him, but felt that he had more ability than just to be an out-and-out winger, that he could dominate and dictate the pace and the direction of a game. And to do that, he had to play centre midfield. And so he was converted by KK from a winger to centre midfield and become a very established English player, England player as a consequence. So 10 years he spent at the club. Oh. Um, and what I didn't realise is when Sir Bobby Robson was appointed, um, Rob Lee was coming up at 32-33. And Rob, when I spoke to him last week, actually said, you know, Robson would have had every right to come in and say, look, sure. you're not for me. You're approaching the end of your career. And he... But he didn't implement him into a very successful side. Got the FA Cup semi-final. Rob scored in the semi-final. I was going to say, I I thought Rob Lee was going to put us in the final in that game. That's the best we'd been at Wembley. Um, Yeah, it it was quite staggering, Andrew, because if you look back on it without going into kick by kick, Rude Hullard had crucified Rob Lee and Alan Shearer, and there was a lot of feeling that his treatment of Rob was a way of getting at Alan because they were like Morgan and Wise fish and chips. You couldn't, Siamese twins, you couldn't part them. Um, and so there was a lot of belief that as a means of getting at Shearer, uh, Wood did it through also getting at this guy. So for then, Bobby to come, 
The first thing Bobby said to me when he came up here, and I, I saw him at the Gosford Park Hotel in his room, he said, I've got to get Shearer on side. And in getting Shearer on side, he also realised he didn't want to get Lee on side to placate Shearer. He knew what a good player he was, and he knew what he could do with him. And that was the great strength of Bobby, which was the great strength of Kevin Keegan. They knew exactly how to ring every ounce of ability and desire out of any player and that's what Bobby did with Rob and Rob's, Rob's time up here he was quite phenomenal and as you know his two sons have become professional footballers uh, but they can't hold a candle to the old man the old man is the cream uh, his lads are more than decent more than decent but he's cream so Rob Lee was part of that team that kind of took the Premier League by storm. Another man who's a huge help in getting to the Premier League and then yep. that first season or so in the top flight, Andy Cole. Yeah, Andy Cole. I mean, the first of the great centre-forward signings made by Kevin Keegan. Uh, Andy Cole came to us in March 93. Um, we'd been in from for quite a while Um we eventually made a bid of £1.7 million. Um, we didn't have the money to make that bid at the time because we were still recovering from what had gone before. And there was certainly not enough money in the, the, the bank. It's it's in James's Park. So they got the president, uh, who was Trevor Bennett, John Orr himself, and the shirt sponsors at that time, Asics, to guarantee the money between them. The three of them guaranteed the money personally. So it was the short shirt sponsor, the president and the owner, Sir John Hall, to get the 1.7 together to sign Andy Cole. Um, I, again, I talked to KK about it and there was a feeling at that time, you know, because he was a young lad that really hadn't made a big breakthrough. He had been at Arsenal. They'd let him go. And there was great rumours that his attitude wasn't right. That one of the things why a talented player hadn't made it is that he had an attitude problem. But KK said, look, he was only 21. Um, he was still learning. And KK was terrific. He, if he saw talent, he didn't care about attitude. I mean... Good gracious me, you've got to be like that if you sign Tino Asprey because he had so much extra baggage they had to get three lorry loads to put the baggage on. Um, so he was never worried, never concerned about, you know, oh, perhaps he shouldn't take him. He's too old, perhaps he shouldn't take him. He's dodgy, perhaps he shouldn't take him. He's wild. That didn't bother him. His one question was, can he play? And if the answer was yes, he can, then he was going to do it. The interesting thing was that the Bristol at the time, Bristol City, had a 13-man committee which, and everything had to go to vote from that, that committee on whether they did a deal or not. 13 guys on the table, that's an awful lot. Newcastle said, take it or leave it. Within five minutes, they'd been going back, going back, going back to the Bristol City board. They said, right, here's an offer, 1.7, take it or leave it, we're going to go elsewhere, we can't go on any longer like this. Without, within five minutes, they were back saying, yeah, we'll take it. So they said immediately, Newcastle said immediately, right, we want Keegan to start talks with Andy straight away. This has gone on long enough. Get him to phone Kevin Keegan. The trouble was they couldn't find Andy Cole, uh, the, the Bristol City board. And of course, he, he was a 
he was a single lad. He came up here as a single lad. Um, and he'd gone missing. They eventually tracked down his car into the centre of Bristol and they found his car and they left a little note under the windscreen wiper saying, can you phone um, the chairman straight away? And when he did, the chairman said, get in touch with Keegan. He was actually doing his laundry round the corner uh, on his own. He's sitting in the launderette watching, the, watching his washing go around and there's a note under his, under his uh, windscreen. But... Uh, I mean, he came to us and he was he, he was absolutely fanatical. He was fabulous. I mean, his promotion season, he scored 12 and 11 starts. Then, if you remember, in the Premiership, he 41, 41 goals. Uh, and the wonderful thing was him with Beardsley. The, the two of them as a partnership. I mean, Beardsley, you've got to remember, when he scored 41 goals in a season, not one of them was a penalty and not one of them was a free kick. None of them were dead ball situations. Everyone was in open play. And he was quite phenomenal. And he was he, he was a peculiar lad in the nicest possible way. I mean, he's a man now and he's warm and he's good company. Then he was an extremely shy guy. He went out, he was, he come here as a superstar because of the, the money they were paying for him in a number nine shirt and he became a huge superstar. And he lived on his own in a little house in Crook um, and and stayed out of the way rather than city centre and the nightclubs. And, you know, you didn't see Andy in that situation. He's big mate. Uh, Beardsley was his big partner on the field. His big mate off the field was Lee Clark. Uh, and they were as close as it was possible to be. But, um, I mean, he was quite a, a, a talent. And um, so it was wonderful when we got him. And it was sensational when we sold him. Yeah, I mean, that was, that is one of the kind of scenes that oh. Cast United fans remember, Kevin Keegan coming down the steps at the old Millburn entrance Correct. and having to face up to scrutiny. And, you know, that was, that, that's Kevin though, to a tease. And he's, he's honest and he, you know, he didn't hide away from the questions and he just said, look, if I feel, a, a, you know, a sale can help the club move forward, then I've got to be allowed to do that. It was January 95 and um, he handled it brilliantly because he handled it bang up front and explained everything to fans. I'm a great believer in tell the fans what you're doing. They mightn't agree with you, but they'll start to understand. Keep the fans in the dark, give them no information whatsoever, and they'll go crackers. Now, it was a sensational. I mean, I remember it at the time. It was a sensational thing to do because we had a history of number nines. This fellow had just smashed Huey Gallagher's all-time scoring record, and Kevin Keegan was building his side to try to win the Premier League title. And you sell your centre-forward. Now, and I said to him at the, at the time, Why? I mean, it was sparked by Ferguson coming on to, to KK and wanting coal. But why then, I said to KK, why then did you agree to sell him? The, the man that had smashed the goal-scoring record and, and still stands to this day. And he thought there was, there was two reasons, actually. There was three reasons. The first one was that Andy Cole had suffered from shin splints. And there was a feeling that this was going to be a recurring problem and that he was never quite going to be the superstar scorer that he had been. 
with hindsight, that proved to be absolutely wrong, of course, because he, the, his goals record at Manchester United was sensational. But he did have shin splints, and he was looking just after that a little bit sluggish, very temporarily. For us, he was in a bit of a goal drought uh, by his standards. Um, the second thing was, and this was brave, and uh, Keegan said to me he thought would come a bit predictable the way we played um, with Cole. Cole sensational, 41 goals. You would never be able to repeat that, not just on the law of averages, but because defences had worked out Newcastle's way of playing and, and we were predictable. And the third reason is that he'd always fancied Keith Gillespie as a flying winger um, capable of opening up defences with his pace, etc., etc. And we saw him at his best Barcelona after KK had left when he set up a spear. Um, and he valued Gillespie at £2.5 million. Pound. But in fact, he got Gillespie for £1 million because in, in the £7 million deal, it was £6 million for coal in, in, in a million or £8 million for coal and put a million taken off for Gillespie. Uh, so he thought he got Gillespie in the deal and he thought overall the deal was huge now the amazing thing and only Kevin with his honesty and his bravery in the transfer market in buying as well as selling could have got away with this he didn't have a centre forward in his back pocket to turn out the next day to replace Andy Cole he sold Andy Cole even with Kevin's reputation and remember it was huge because he'd been a, a wonderful player for Newcastle winning them promotion as well as a, a manager taking them one way upwards he after training a lot of disgruntled fans around the car park he got them together he stood on the stairs and explained to them exactly why he had done the deal that he had and his final words to them were trust me now that was a heck of a thing to say and the fans amazingly said like they may do with Benitez if that situation had said, we do trust them. And sure enough, in fairness, while it didn't happen the next day, if you think that he brought in Les Ferdinand and Alan Shearer to play centre-forward after Andy Cole, it was worth trusting them. You mentioned there that Keegan had always liked Keith Gillespie, always yeah. wanted him as part of his side. And we're going to talk about other players, the likes of David Ginola... Um, mm, obviously mm. we've already talked about quite a few uh, cracking little players who scouted them because today you've got a network of scouts you've got you know probably half a dozen at the top teams uh, probably even more um, you know maybe on a retainer across across the globe looking out for you what was the situation back then had Keegan seen every one of these players playing or was yes. he getting tip off so quite, amazing, quite amazing yes I mean you, he, scouts would see somebody and say they like him or they don't like him and um, he'd get tip offs off people but he had gone and is a Dan Peacock he'd watched five times Les Ferdinand more times than you, you've had hot dinners um, Alan Shearer of course uh, with Gillespie the same sort of thing he personally went he was football obsessed and he didn't have a night in he went to games and he saw all the top players put 
the, the names in the notebook. Mightn't be able to get them at a particular time, but I'll go back, I'll go back, and I'll go back. And one of the things that John Hall and Freddie Shepard and Douglas Hall told me repeatedly during the entertainer's time, there wasn't a signing we made that not only ha had the rubber stamp of Kevin Keegan on it, but Kevin Keegan had personally scouted at least four to five times each one that we signed. Um, that is so different from today, and I'm not blaming managers or saying managers don't do that. Managers aren't allowed to do that. They do not, in the modern game, have the sort of clout to sign who they want that Kevin Keegan had and that Joe Harvey had. That slowly was taken away from managers in years since. And even it started during Bobby Robson's time, who found it harder to fight for players. But he had scouted each and every one of these guys. So with that freedom, uh, obviously came a lot of players in. And one person that did come in, probably against the owners, which is originally mm -hmm. was, was Peter Beardsley. A lot yep. of yep. questions over his age. And, and maybe Sir John was told a little white lie. Yeah, oh, that. without a shadow of doubt. I mean... Um, what goes round comes round and me say, just having said there and about this guy scouted everybody time and time again didn't have to scout Peter Beardsley he played with him at St James's Park when uh, when Newcastle were promoted um, when the famous Waddle Beardsley and uh, Keegan forward line front three um, the only trouble here was that he was no longer a spring chicken, was our Peter, but what a player. Uh, what, what a player. Uh, and managers tend to go back when they know they've got a safe bet, don't they, and take that guy. And ironically, at the time we signed Peter Beardsley, there was one other club strongly in from that we had a say off. That club was Derby County, who were managed by Arthur Cox, who was the manager when the three of them one promotion for Newcastle, so Arthur knew what he was trying to get at the same time. It's interesting that you mention about managers going back when they know they've got a good thing. Just a quick take on your view on players returning to our clubs. Obviously, yes. we've seen Andy Carroll come back. We saw Norberto Solano return. That worked out well, and obviously. Um, well, she had never played for Newcastle beforehand, but he came back mm, to his club. Mm, but mm, on, mm. on players who have played for a club and then returned, are you... A fan of that, or do you, do you, what is your? I'm very cautious about it. I, I often think if you've been a, a sensation, it's very difficult to do it a second time. Um, and I had I was wondering about that with Andy Carroll as, as, as recently as this is. Uh, you know, is it a good idea to go back? I know some players think it is, and I know some players think it isn't. And there's always exceptions. I know, for example, that Alan Kennedy was due to come back, who had played for Newcastle in the 70s in the cup finals before he went off and had a wonderful career at Liverpool, was due to come back here and bottled it at the last minute because he thought he couldn't replicate what he'd done the first time round and went to Sunderland. Shows what a deaf lad he was. But uh, I, that's what he did, and he did do that. But there's others. I think it's an exception rather than the rule when they come back and do as well again. And as you've mentioned, there was Peter Beardsley here. There was Terry McDermott, of course, who signed for us and become a, a superstar, um, played in the 74 Cup final, went off to Liverpool and won the European Cup again and again. And then came back uh, and played for us alongside Keegan. And, of course, was, was the number two here when the entertainers were being built. I'm not a great 
believe in in a, a guy coming back because I think it is very if you've been top notch to start with if you've been a kid and you've gone away and you had five first team games and you come back as a proper fully fledged player can be different if you've been a big name coming back and doing that again Beardsley with his opinion don't worry about it With it, sorry with his ability don't worry about it he was going to be able to replicate it the amazing thing is that um when he went to sign him, you know, the way the, him and Terry Mack were sitting in a, in Weatherby in a car waiting and he's on the phone to St. James's Park, Keegan, and he sees Beardsley go past with his agent uh, walking into the to the place and he's panicking about because Newcastle are saying, oh, don't think we should sign him, etc., etc. He's the wrong side of 30. And um, Derby were in, but... He was actually 33, and he, he told him he was 31, I think. Uh, he told John Hall. Um, and as an absolute panic, because in, Freddie Shep was the one on the phone, on the other end of the phone to Keegan, uh, and he was relaying the messages to John Hall. And as an absolute panic, Keegan, when he saw Beardsley walking in with the agent and thought, we can't keep him waiting too much longer, he, he took his life in his hand and said, anyway, Freddie, I'll tell you something. And this might concentrate your mind. I've just learned in the last half hour, Sunderland are in form. And Freddie said, go and get him. Sunderland weren't in form at all. Uh, and he went in and he got him. And um, John says to these days, to this day, I'm off glad. I had looked in me who's who and seen his age, but I'm off glad. And this is where, in those days, Club owners took the word of the manager on transfers much more than they do now. They, 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 they take the word of the chief scout or the uh, director of football or whatever much more seriously than they do the manager. Keegan came at the end of a period where the manager ruled supreme in the transfer market, as Joe Harvey had done, and Joe Harvey and Kevin Keegan are the best two managers for looking at horse flesh and knowing the quality that, I, that I've known. Just a final word on Peter Beardsley. I mean, one of the greatest ever players. Oh, um, How much would he, in his peak, how much do you think he'd be worth today? Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. I mean, we are, what, 120 or five years of history of the club, and for me, he's the greatest player Newcastle United have ever had. He had the touch, the ability, the scoring ability to play for Barcelona. As he, good as Messi? He was England's Messi. That's what I was about to say. He was small like Messi. He could score goals like Messi. He could create goals like Messi. He had this ability to see things two moves ahead of everybody else on the field. He was England's, not just Newcastle United, he was England's Messi of his day. That's how good he is. How much would Messi go for these days? We we talk about transfers. I mean, I'm not having a go at all at Joe Linton. But if he's Newcastle's record signing at 40 million, this fella, well, I mean, the figure just goes through the ceiling. From one attacking uh, player, we'll go back into defence, to Darren Peacock. I think many fans watching uh, him play would feel sorry because he was often the only one defending. I don't think that's a 
Um, I don't think that's unfair on anyone else in that back four, but... Absolutely true. And I, I used to talk to Darren about it. It's interesting that we're talking about a centre-half in uh, in Kevin Keegan's entertainers because you had to nip yourself to realise you had a centre-half. And he often used to say, he felt, you know, the, the fella standing on the burning bridge, he often looked at Newcastle United and thought, God, I'm lonely. Because he, he, he had Philip Albert, who played alongside him, who spent most of his time trying to chip the goalkeeper and being very successful at it, as Michael will tell you. Down the other end, he said he had um, Bez and Steve Watson as his two fullbacks, who spent most of the time around the 18-yard box. He said and, uh, there was only the keeper... And sometimes he had to look over his shoulder to make certain the keeper was still in his goal. And he used to say to the... Uh, he said to me one day, I, I got so perturbed about being on my own. He said that I turned to Steve Watson and said, hey, you little ginger so-and-so, get yourself back here on, on my shoulder. He said, and Steve turned around looked at us and said, I'm not ginger, I'm strawberry blonde. And he said, I couldn't help but burst out laughing. And that's the sort of team spirit and situation I was. It was interesting with Dan Peacock because what I'd said before about Keegan and signing players, uh, when, I, when I talked to Keegan about Peacock, he said he'd personally watched him five times. Personally watched him five times. And he went to Andy Cole and said to Andy Cole, who was his centre forward at the time, scoring all the goals, said to him, who's the best three central defenders that you've played against in the whole of your career? And one of the names that he that he mentioned was Darren Peacock. Um, the situation, again, we'd been in and in. He joined us March 94. It was then a club record fee of 2.7 million. Um the interesting thing was that Hereford had a 10% sell-on clause with QPR. So they, they made £260,000 off our fee for Dan Peacock, which is more than they got off QPR when they sold them to QPR. I think they sold them for 200000 They got 260000 off us. And in the same way as when we signed Les Ferdinand from the same club, QPR, another non-league club, Hereford, had a 10%. And uh, we kept non-league clubs alive in those days. We, we, we kept uh, Hereford alive and um, we, we kept Newport alive. It, it, he was a good, good player. Um, sorry, it was Hereford that got the money uh, for Peacock and it was Hayes that got the money for Ferdinand. He had started in Newport County, who I mentioned. They folded, he went to Hereford, then QPR. Um and he was a terrific personality. Um, we talk about him standing being the, the guy on the burning bridge, but uh, if you remember the, one of the games we want to remember awfully well, which was when we cuffed Man United 5-0, he started the goal scoring down near the end. Although I wasn't quite certain the ball crossed the line to, uh, to go in the net, but it did. I think that's one of the... Obviously, that game alone is one of the greatest moments when you cast a United fan, but when you uh, watch it back and you have Andy Gray... Uh, arguing that's not over the line it's not over the line and then he watches it and he just goes oh oh it looks like it is yes. <laughs> there's just something about that there's just something about that um, but you know it, one good thing that you realise about the entertainers um, is that the kind of atmosphere within the in the group to this day most of them are still very close um, very much so I think the last time I saw Darren Peacock he was with uh, Beresford and Steve Watson and you, you were doing a talking yeah um, yeah and that, you know 
And I think that speaks volumes about, you know, they went through, which was quite a traumatic time when you think about it, 12 points clear, lost the title. Oh, you know, oh, everything could have, everything could have fallen apart there, including friendships. And yet, to this day, you know, Rob Lee, Alan Shearer are still best of friends. And everyone seems to still look back on that, that period. There's no question. Funny. And they all, they made, it, when you live through something like that, in fans that lived through it, will tell you, uh, you appreciate it at the time. You think, oh, this is terrific. I'm looking forward to the match on Saturday, this, this. But it's only afterwards when you revert to the, what you used to have that you begin to appreciate this. And wherever any of these guys went and played after Newcastle United, they will always say the greatest time in my career was when I was with Newcastle United. And the greatest manager, and that's the interesting thing, because um, was Kevin Keegan. Uh, they will say that because he was a great uh, man-manager and he created a great spirit. But ironically, you know, it was a very, very special thing that happened up here. And in my humble opinion, Kevin Keegan was never as good a manager again when he left Newcastle and went to Fulham and Manchester City and England, and he was never as good a manager again as he was here because he was given the freedom here by the board to go out and buy who he wanted to buy. I can't remember any time they said no and it remained no. There were chances. The Newcastle board were chances with Douglas Hall pushing... John Hall and Freddie Fletch doing the same thing and Freddie Shep buying into that. There were chances, and and but they were back in the right man, they were shrewd, and they built something which was absolutely unstoppable, really. So from Darren Peacock to Philip Albert, you've briefly mentioned him there. Mm. Um, Belgium international arrived, got injured quite quickly after, which was, um, I think, devastating for Newcastle, but came back. Um, and he obviously scored some wonderful goals, more remembered for his wonderful goals. You mentioned the chip against Schmeichel, but also scored, I think it was a double against City as well, and it, it was, you know, some fantastic oh. efforts on goal. Um, but also, we do forget that, he, you know, he wasn't the worst defender in the world, was he? No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He, he, oh, he was a very, very good defender, but you remember him because how many centre-halves have the touch and the delicacy to do what he did with Schmeichel when he chipped Schmeichel. Not, you know, that's a, a great forwards goal, a great midfield creator's goal rather than the centre-half's goal. But it, again, emphasising the point about Keegan knowing who he was buying, when we signed him August 94, Keegan had been in America doing TV work at the World Cup finals during that summer. And um, he'd seen... Philip Albert's star for Belgium out there um, and they decided this... See, he looked upon it, not just are they good players, but would they be good players in the system I wish to play? And he knew this fella would be. What he didn't know when he decided he wanted this fella is that when Philip Albert was a kid, obsessed with football and had photos on the wall out of magazines pinned on the wall of players the figure he had on the wall was Kevin Keegan playing for England um, and he was going to go and get Kevin uh, Kevin Keegan was going to come and get him um, the whole thing came to a head when Newcastle were playing in Glasgow in a pre-season tournament and uh, Terry McDermott 
took a phone call from the uh, an agent who said he had five days to sell Philip Albier, would, would Newcastle be interested? Liverpool were interested, and Blackburn Rovers, who in those days, as you know, were a big club, Jack Walker and all that, were also interested. Um, Terry Mack went and saw KK, and whether KK was right or wrong, he always made up his mind about anything in life very, very quickly. And he said immediately, having seen this fella in the World Cup finals, he's right for us. And Terry Mack told me a story at the time. He says, you know, Gibbo, uh, the gaffer makes up his mind quickly. He says, I remember we're going up to Scotland to watch a player. He said, and it took with two or three hours to get up there. We sat down in my seat. And the team started running out. And KK Kern turned to us and said, let's go, Terry. This guy's not for us. And I said, what? He hasn't kicked the ball yet. But it was the guy's body language as he came out the tunnel and as he ran doing a little kick-in before they kicked off, he thought he was disinterested, lethargic, not bang, 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 bang. And he said immediately, and he meant it, sorry, this guy's not for us, let's go. Um, and that's how quickly he made up his mind, and he made up his mind on this guy. Um, and within three days of Terry Mac talking to the president on the phone up in Scotland uh, they went down to Leeds Bradford Airport to meet Philip Albert flying in and the interesting thing that helped swing the deal is that Philip Albert came in uh, it, with his agent to do the deal with Newcastle United his agent a guy I know very very well it was called Peter Harrison who was a Geordie who played for Gateshead non-league football had gone out to play for Charleroi in, in in Belgium and he was a central defender and Peter Harrison had played centre-half alongside Philip Albert in club football in Belgium, was a fanatical Newcastle United supporter and he was coming in with Philip Albert to do the deal with Newcastle United well KK said, quite the, the agent who can normally be stroppy is a Geordie who's a Newcastle United fan, I think I had every chance of being able to sign this guy and um, he described him later to me. He said, uh, I said, what's give you a buzz? You know, he, he loved signing people. He loved one of his things with the entertainers was signing good players. And he said, I said, what do you... He said, the greatest buzz that I got with Newcastle I signed players was when I signed two players, I got such a buzz from getting those two in particular. One was Philip Albert and the other was David Ginola. Well, we're going to get on to those kind of uh, big name players that came in the 95, 96 mm. uh, season. But just before we do, about building entertainers when that title started flying around from the press and what have you yeah. from the fans, what did Keegan think of it? Obviously, I assume his um, aim was always to build an attacking side that would, well, you know, that would look to entertain. But did he... Did he aim to get such an affection for that side? Was that his, like, not just in Newcastle, but across the country? Well, first and foremost, the way he always looked at the game, he was a forward that thought like a forward. Um, I mean, Darren Peacock often said to me, he said, when I first met the gaffer and I talked about what he wanted for Newcastle United, he said, with an absolute straight face, I want five attackers and five defenders. In, in his team he said and he badly let me down because he didn't have five defenders he had one defender me and, and, and he, he had uh, nine attackers um, 
but he was always on the front foot, never on the back foot. He never coached a defence to keep a clean sheet. He wasn't too interested in clean sheets. He, because, he, I mean, it's famously been said, but absolutely true, you know, you score three, we'll score four. Um, and he always wanted to win the title for Newcastle United the purest way possible. Not just win the title for Newcastle United, because most managers to go about that would make certain the back door was locked and try to sneak a goal. Arsenal won things 1-0. 1 uh, 1-0 to the Arsenal was the chant that went up the minute they scored from their own supporters. 1-0 to the Arsenal. And I'm not knocking that. That is the, the best way of trying to win a title. He wanted to win football's purest title ever, which is win it on absolutely full floor, out and out, attacking football. And everybody says he failed spectacularly to Manchester United that season uh, when a 12-point lead was blown. And sure, yes, he did. But people forget that he created a 12-point lead. It He got so close to Newcastle being the greatest entertaining side that ever won the championship. And I felt when that didn't happen that season, he left halfway through the following season. And it's just my opinion, and I haven't discussed it with Kevin, but I never think he was the same manager again. I think a little bit went out of his heart the day that he was on the verge of winning the ultimate prize in the perfect way. And when that didn't happen, I think a little bit of his heart died and I don't think he was ever the same manager with another club or with England ever again. We hope you've enjoyed this episode so far. Just a quick reminder to please subscribe and review to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify or whichever podcast provider you listen through. Hi there, it's Caroline Foran from Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast, and this is a Staycast from Acast. Please, please, please do follow the government's advice right now, which is currently to stay at home where possible. The sooner we all get on board with these measures, the sooner we will be all together again. While you're staying at home, here's a recommendation for another great podcast for you to listen to. I think we need a bit of comic relief more than ever, so why not try the Two Johnnies podcast, available on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. On to happier times. Uh, we'll take mm. it back before that season as Newcastle broke records left, right and centre when it came to prices and transfer uh, transfers <laughs> in. Yeah. One that probably gets lost amongst it all is Warren Barton. Yeah, and the reason it gets lost um, totally is because he signed on June the 5th, 1995 for a club record fee of £4 million, and that club record survived for two days until they signed Les Ferguson on Les Ferguson, <laughs> Les Ferdinand, <laughs> Les Ferdinand, two days later on June the 7th. June the 5th, uh, Newcastle record, 4.5 for Warren Barton, Les come in the door two days later and Warren Barton was the ex-club record back. Um, and that's how staggering Newcastle were at the time. They they. All these, if you looked at the dates, all happened within a few months of each other, all these deals. And Warren Barton at the time, 
uh, was quite a, a coup. They signed him from Wimbledon. He'd already played for England. He was the costliest defender. Um, the ironic thing is, in fairness, you know, there wasn't just two days between the deal. There was actually more because Newcastle had shook hands to sign Warren Barton way before June the 5th. But they were buying them from Wimbledon, and Wimbledon existed in these days by selling their top players. I mean, looking at a list, it signed Besant and Thorne to us. They, they, they sold Besson and Thorne to us. They sold Dennis Wise, Vinnie Jones, Fashionu. But what they did, they sold one a year, one every financial year, so that they didn't get hammered for tax. And while they agreed to get to sell Warren Barton to us, uh, they wanted him in a new financial year, so we waited till June the 5th to complete the deal so that they didn't get hammered in tax. Uh, and he came and joined us, and phew, there were stars that suddenly... There were stars that were already stars when they come to Newcastle, like Peter Beardsley, who knew everything about. There was people that came from sort of nowhere and became superstars, like Andy Cole from Bristol, etc., etc., and then there was guys like Warren Barton who was already in England national. They didn't quite reach the heights of a Ginola or a Ferdinand or a, a Shearer, but but was still part of the fabric. An unsung hero. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And um, I think he was exactly that. Um, and of course he wasn't an attacker, so he wasn't going to quite get the headlines and the entertainers. When you speak to Warren about his time in Newcastle, yeah. you know, he's just so proud to have pulled on the black and white shirt Absolutely. He got what it meant to play for this club again. He's still very good friends with Rob Lee and Alan Shearer, and he understood the pride that the people of Newcastle yeah. have in their team. Uh, without a shadow of doubt. And I, I, I think Keegan fostered that sort of thing and fostered it deliberately. Uh, team spirit was something he was very big on, and he was a wonderful PR with the fans. He, he not only told the fans what was happening, i.e. Andy Cole, etc. He not only bought wonderfully talented players, he not only attacked relentlessly through most of his games but he opened up training at um, down at Chester Street Newcastle training uh, where fans could go and watch all these superstars train during the week with Newcastle United and get in for nothing and watch them train and there was about 5,000 turning up with kids and men in black and white shirts and young girls squealing at the, all the stars like Ginola, etc., etc. And there was a wonderful atmosphere created. And, you know, the funny thing is people say, well, did he not want buying closed doors lots of managers now when they do their tactics and they run through their formations they don't want anybody to see? Keegan wasn't a tactics man and everybody you talk to, so he didn't mind. They played five aside. Their training was do a warm-up and play a five-a-side, and Keegan and Terry Mack would play in the five-a-side. That's what they did, and so the, play, so the fans saw them as near as possible to a game situation. And uh, you talk to the players, and he said, they would often say, no, he didn't do tactics. He didn't believe in tactics. He believed in people. And he would say that if I bought Peter Beardsley and Ginola and Alan Shearer and Les Ferdinand, and Philip Albert, uh, am I going to tell them how to play? I bought them because they know how to play. And he would just do a few basics on formation, 
and leave the West. He said, if I've got to tell Peter Beardsley how to play, either I've got a huge ego or there's something wrong with Peter Beardsley because he knows how to play. So moving on from Warren Barton on to the man you have mentioned, Les Ferdinand. Indeed. He, he was a man that, sh- um, I was going to say shoe there, he was a man that uh, Keegan had wanted, you know, I think oh, the season before, season before for that. And it's a story that Keegan took Andy Cole down to watch Les yeah. Ferdinand and, and said, yeah. look, play like yeah. this guy. That's right. Uh, that story, which is absolutely true, has gone to folklore. Keegan was was pulling into St James's Park on a day when the players had a day off, and QPR were playing at Liverpool that night, and KK was going to go down to have it yet another of his looks at Les Ferdinand, which he did with all the players, as I mentioned. And poor old Andy just happened to be walking into the the club offices at the same time to pick up his mail. Uh, you know, letters from fans, etc., etc., and he saw him and he said, "Hey, Andy, what are you doing tonight?" And before Andy could think of a reason why he, he wouldn't be available for whatever the boss wanted, he said, "Jump in the car." He knew he's a single man, so he hadn't a problem of telling his wife or picking the kids up from school. Jump in the car, come down to to Cuba. He said, "Come down to Liverpool." He said, "I want you to watch their number nine. Les Ferdinand, he says he's the complete number nine. He's what number nine's all about. I don't want you to watch a game. I want you to watch Les Ferdinand. Now, the idea wasn't just you watch him and pick up some tips on how to play with the centre-forward, but the idea at that time was that he was going to try to buy Les Ferdinand to play alongside Andy Cole. Ironically, because of what happened with Andy Cole and Manchester United and Keith Gillespie... Uh, uh, Les Ferdinand became his replacement not the guy that was going to play alongside him so was it a case that Andy Cole was, was sold and that's why that never happened just the ti- like the timing it was purely the timing um, because he, he was a very impulse manager was, was Keegan and his idea was to get Cole and Ferdinand to play together however that was scuppered for two reasons first QPR kept reneging on deals with Newcastle United. Uh, we want to be safe before we sell our greatest asset. We don't want to risk going down. And then, of course, he couldn't, uh, Keegan couldn't control when Ferguson was going to come in and say, I fancy coal. So when he comes in and says, you fancy coal, you either say yes or you say no. But all of a sudden, they concentrate mind. And in the meantime, he couldn't get Ferdinand because QPR wouldn't sell him but he was very persistent he was a bulldog as well was Keegan he never gave up on anybody that he wanted he went back and went back and went back until he got him and he'd lost Cole and eventually of course he got uh, uh, Ferdinand to play alongside Shearer but he was supposed to play alongside Cole originally Can you imagine paying £6 million today for Hmm. a striker of Ferdinand's quality Oh, I mean quite incredible Uh, the last figure Newcastle bid from was 5.5. Uh, they then heard from QPR that Aston Villa had gone in and bid £6 million. And by now, QPR were ready. It was June of '95, so it was the close season, so they had time for replacements, etc., etc. They said, we are going to sell them this time. So Newcastle realised they had to go to six mil because there was no way, although Ferdinand fancied us, there was no way they were going to accept 5.5 when they had six mil coming from Villa. So we matched the six mil uh, and we got them. Um, 
and he knew, he knew of us wanting him and he was desperate to come and sign for us. And Peter Beardsley said afterwards, he said, he is the best header of the ball I've ever seen, bar none, bar none. And that's saying something because Newcastle have had great headers of the ball. Shearer was a great header of the ball. Uh, and he, and Beardsley with England, etc., has played with great headers of the ball. But he says the best man in the air, and I would tend to agree with him, Les Ferdinand. But blistering attack. I mean, the goal against Coventry <laughs> um, in his home debut, I mean, the speed, how he runs, and, he, and the precision of that effort as well, because he's a long way out of goal. Um, I think he's midway through his own half. And he pops it in, and you know it's a bit like David Kelly's shot against Grimsby. We're talking inches, but hey, if you're a striker with that precision, oh. you know as soon as you hit that, that, that that's in. Um, and this guy, he wasn't only the part; he looked the part, didn't he? He was built wonderfully. He was as handsome as it's possible to get. Um, I mean, the girls absolutely adored him. And the fellas adored him because he scored piles of goals for Newcastle United. And he was a thoroughly nice man. But he was the extrovert where Andy Cole was the introvert. Uh, they were very different natured. Um, and I felt very sorry for him in the end because he had a huge love affair with Newcastle United. And yet it was so short through none of his own doing. And he got two big slaps in the two seasons he was here. Um he played one season when he was absolutely brilliant, 29 goals or, or whatever, in the number nine shirt. Then he got the number nine shirt, took off him for Alan Shearer when Alan Shearer signed. Well, we know what Alan Shearer was. He was already a Premier League winner, title winner, and what he became at this club, so understand it. But it did hurt. They became firm friends and a wonderful partnership, but it hurt him initially to lose the number nine shirt. Then... Both of them lost Keegan in that season they were together. And, of course, Dalglish come in and decided to pedal uh, Les because he only wanted to play with one striker and that striker was going to be Shearer. And that hurt Les tremendously. And then, of course, it boomeranged on Newcastle tremendously because Shearer got done at Everton pre-season and asked Les to change his mind as he was in London literally going that day to talk to Tottenham. And he said, you've got to be joking, despite his love for Newcastle. He wasn't going to come back and play for a manager that had peddled him and broken his heart in peddling him. Couldn't blame him at all. No. You mentioned there just how good he was at attacking the ball in the air. One man that supplied the crosses for him was David Ginola. Huh. We've we spoken about players with flair. We've spoken about players huh. that the, the, the women loved and, the, you know... I mean, David Ginola had it all, didn't he? Oh, literally, and some more. He had it all and some more. I mean, quite amazing. July 95, when he, he called him. Freddie Shepard called it the steal of the century because he got him for £2.5 million. He said it was probably Newcastle's easiest and smoothest transfer deal from abroad. Um, and the impact of it was phenomenal. Um the impact of Ginola first coming to Newcastle. Originally, which is quite amazing, um, KK was in America. It was done during the summer of 95. KK was in America. Uh, so Terry Mack actually did the deal from a caravan site in Amble. Now, can you imagine that? He's doing a deal for David Ginola, one of the most sophisticated people possible, who was living in Paris at the time, 
and Terry Max in a caravan in Amble doing the deal. Um, Terry Mack was up for the day with the family. He would talk to the PSG president, broken English, uh, on the phone. The president had a lady interpreter alongside him to help with um, uh, the translation, which there would no doubt he needed the... Uh, the, the girl interpreted very much because with Terry Mack's scouse out uh, accent, I couldn't understand what he was talking about half the time, never mind, never mind the PSG present. Um, and the deal was done pretty quickly. Arsenal were in from at the time. Uh, Ginola had already been up to Glasgow Celtic. Um, it's hard to believe when he was such an elegant and wonderful, wonderful player, but he, he had become a bit of an outcast at, at home in France, which is how we got him, because... Um, France missed out on the 74 World Cup finals because David Ginola misplaced a pass in a defensive position, tried to pass out, pass to a Bulgarian who scored, they were eliminated, and David Ginola was crucified in the press. It looked as if his international career was at an end and he wanted out of the country as a result. Now, I told you about Keegan being fearless. It didn't matter that... Um, Andy Cole was supposed to be moody. It didn't matter that Tino Asprey was supposed to be wilder than Al Capone. And it didn't matter that David Ginola had absolutely blown France's World Cup dreams by passing outside his own penalty area because that's the way Keegan wanted to play anyway. And 99 times out of 100, you would get away with that and go on an attack and make that attack count. Uh, so it didn't scare him at all. Um, and he went ahead with it. It was an amazing thing. He flew in with his wife at the time, Caroline, and they flew in the Gosford Park Hotel, met Terry Mack, Freddie Shep, Russell Jones and Freddie Fletch. The amazing thing is his wife, Janola's wife, wanted to go and see the Metro Centre. After they flew in for talks at the Gustav Park, she wanted to go and see the, see the Metro Centre and he didn't want to take part in the personal uh, details of his contract. He wanted his agent to handle that and he wanted to look at Newcastle. So Newcastle United very cleverly remembered that the head of catering at St James's Park at the time, a fellow called Jim O'Connor, spoke fluent French. Uh, David had limited English, uh, his wife virtually none at all. So they got Jim O'Connor up, who shepherded them around the um, Metro Centre and around Newcastle and whatever. You know, uh, they were thrilled to bits with this while the terms were quickly agreed with the agent at, at the Gosford Park Hotel. And the next day, John says, he went down to see David Ginola and his wife the next day. And typical of the way Newcastle United were at the time, he said, come and have a pint, John said to David. He said, come and have a pint. He said, I'll introduce you to Newcastle Brown Ale. That's a drink up here, Newcastle Brown Ale. And he took him into strawberry just outside the ground. He said, and he walked in and there's guys on the dartboard and having their pints with, uh, you know, sitting there. And you walk in with David Ginola, who looks like a Hollywood superstar, and his wife, who was one of the most beautiful women uh, at the time, he said, and everybody in the place, you could feel their jaw drop onto the floor. They carried away by David Ginola and carried away by his beautiful wife, and they took the, the uh, strawberry by storm. I remember when I first went to 
interview him just after he signed. Uh, I said, can I have a one-on-one -on -one with him? He, yeah, sure, of course. So in he come, I'm waiting in the Melbourne suite. In he came, he had, um, had uh, tracksuit trousers on rolled up to the knee. Um, he's carrying a big bag and he swept in hair flowing in the breeze ordered from the girl at reception ordered that they open a, a box a private box upstairs and deliver coffee and biscuits up there for us for the interview reaches into his bag and says is it all right if i smoke in those days you could of course in inside and he brought out one of these elegant long cigarettes considering i was a smoker at the time i thought this was manna for from heaven for me i thought i'm going to get on with this guy and uh, but the amazing thing is we're used with um, Jackie Milburn smoking at half time in this in the fifties cup finals at Wembley, but they bless them were smoking woodies. They weren't smoking um, these long, uh, sophisticated uh, cigarettes from Paris. Um, and funny enough, a, a wonderful tale. Newcastle in those days and and these days as well, um, all the preseason games were played away from home. You know, they they played away preseason lining. Uh, but because of my friendship with John Hall, who was who had become my main sponsor at Gateshead when I owned Gateshead, um, he'd arranged that Newcastle United, because I, if what I'd done to help him get into power there, would play a friendly at Gateshead pre-season. And he had a word with KK, and the word got out that Newcastle was sending the first team across, not the reserves, not the under-23s, the first team, and it was literally the first team, was sold out within 24 hours, 11,900 tickets. It still gets its record attendance to this day, gets a football club. They filled the International Stadium, which is 11,900, all, all ticket. They filled, it was the first team, and it was the debut on Tyneside, because they hadn't played at St James's Park, for... Les Ferdinand and David Ginola. Can you imagine me as chairman and owner of a little club like Gateshead having Ferdinand and Ginola appearing in Newcastle Strip for the first time on Tyneside at Gateshead? And before the game, John Hall had said to me and Kevin King said to me, look, Gibbo, we're happy to do this. It's good PR exercise, etc., etc. But look, we don't want any fun and games. This is just before the final. We don't want any heroics. We don't want any naughtiness. We want a good, clean game. It's, a, it's like an exhibition game. So I went down in the in, in the boat, in the dressing room, our dressing room, before the game. Said, "Right, lads, it's an pl absolute pleasure to be able to play against this side today. This will be one of the highlights of your career, whether it's a friendly or not. The one thing you've got to do is no stupidity." No rash tackles. No, these people are worth thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pounds, and they're going to pay your wages for the rest of the season with this one appearance here. The gate money guarantees your wages for the rest of the season. So be nice and gentle. Went up into the press box. I'm sitting in the press box, packed ground. They're the run out. I think this all my birthdays come at once. My club against Newcastle United debuts Daniel and Ferdinand. Within six minutes, Ginola gets the ball in midfield. And we had a little bulldog of a midfielder called Mark Hine, who by non-league standards was a very good player. Played for Doncaster Rovers when they had a good team. It's a one in England, B-cap, semi-pro cap, while with me, etc. He took 
but he liked the tackle and he took Ginola off by the stocking tops. He did four forward rolls as French lads tried to do with his hair flying in all different directions. And the whole board and the Newcastle bench with Keegan just turned round and looked at me. I was absolutely mortified. I could imagine this guy going off on a stretcher and missing the first three months of the season. I was down out the box and to my dugout saying to the manager, for God's sake, get the message on there. No more of that. And of course, they scored three goals in the first 10 minutes and two in the last. And But we got a corner and did a lap of honour. Did he win the ball, though, in that tackle? We all forgot about the ball, eh, to be truthful. <laughs> He'd forgot about the ball. And, of course, the wonderful thing is, because David could half play, eh, but he was he was a Frenchman playing in the French way. So, I mean, he, he almost rolled from the halfway line to the 18-yard box uh, when he received a tackle like that. On to our final man, then. Oh, We've yes. mentioned him quite a few times in this podcast, and he's another player, character, that will live long in the memory of Newcastle United fans, and it is... Tino Aspria. Oh dear me, yes. Arrived from, from Parma. Everyone remembers the, the fair court and, and the snowstorm at Tyneside. Mm-hmm. Again, one that didn't come out of nowhere, one that Keegan had, 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 had known about, had tried to get before. He eventually did arrive, I think it was in the January. Um, February 96. February, my apologies. And he is someone that gets a bit of stick. Um, yeah. As the person who... Yeah, he, derailed the, the championship. Yes, I mean, inevitably, if somebody... If if you look as if you're favourites for the championship, you make a new signing and then you don't win the championship, uh, the fingers pointed at you. Rodney, Rodney Marsh signed for Man City and they did exactly the same thing. They were going to win the title and they didn't and he got blamed. And, and from a lot of people, Tino Espria got blamed. But never by the fans, you know. The fans love him to this day. Because a bigger extrovert you, you couldn't wish to meet. I'd watched, in those days, I think it was Channel 4 that had Italia yeah. uh, on, which was a live match from Italy. Um, it was on the back initially of Gascoigne going out to Lazio. That's what opened the door. And I used to watch Palmer play when the two front men were Spreer and Zola, Chelsea, etc., etc., and there was sensation. I used to watch him just be awestruck. And then all of a sudden, this guy's going to sign for Newcastle United. And again, this was the, the thing where Kevin Keegan, if you could play, he didn't care if you had a reputation for whatever it was. And this guy had a huge reputation as a, as a gangster, you know, guns flying about in the air, etc., etc. And... KK was fully aware of that and he said, I don't care. He, he will buy into what we do and he can play. I can't teach a player how to play, but I can teach a player how to behave enough for him to do a job for me. And uh, that's the way it worked. The deal was held up initially for a while because he came over for a medical and he had a medical year. And this often brings up injuries which people didn't really know existing and threw up the suspicion of an old knee injury and Newcastle halted the deal temporarily and the word come back from Palmer that they were very dischuffed and thought Newcastle were trying to lower the fee by saying oh we're concerned about a knee injury take a million off so Newcastle dispensed Russell Jones and Freddie Fletcher over to to meet the Palmer officials and placate them and 
they, they did that and at the end of the conversation they had to take an interpreter with them at the end of the conversation the president of Palmer got up and said a few words in the boardroom and then Newcastle replied and um, Freddie Fletch said thank you very much it's very gracious of you etc etc and the, the, the Newcastle interpreter said why did you shake hands with the president and Freddie said well that's the courteous thing to do. He said, ah, but he just called you a little one of those. <laughs> he called him a little four-letter word uh, because he, he felt that he'd tucked up in, in, he'd heard of Freddie's reputation, for Fletch, as the Rockweiler, and he thought Newcastle were playing fun games to get the price down. Um, and the guy come to Newcastle and people like Beardsley, who could play, uh, and saw this guy and people like Shearer and they just thought he's sensational he is you know he is sensational wild as it's possible to be mad as a box of frogs all those things uh, never really learned English greatly through the most wonderful parties um, and had tremendous ability and still when he comes over from Colombia now is adored by the fans why not go for Shearer in that, at that time as opposed to Tino? I mean, was that ever on the cards or was it? Well, this was in the February. Shearer wasn't available. They, they got him in the July. Yeah. They got him. So they got him a few months later. Yeah. Um, and, and then he played with them, of course. Um, but at that stage, it's when you're going for people like Ferdinand and Shearer and uh, the established people, um, not... Andy Cole, who wasn't established when we got him, it takes time. And it's when the opportunity comes. As I say, and Ferdinand was supposed to be bought to play alongside Cole, but by the time we got him, Cole had gone, and he was his replacement, and then he played alongside Shearer. But he's like a dog at broth, Keegan. He never gave up any deal. If it took him two years to complete a deal, he stayed with it where a lot of managers will try and try and try and say, well, I can't move him, forget him, who will I go for now? He stayed with his original deals. And, of course, when we're saying, if you're completing the entertainers, we, in February 96, we had Tino, and in July 96, they, they, the whole thing was completed when we... And what a sensational way to complete the entertainers as a team. You sign a guy for a world record transfer fee. Imagine Newcastle doing that these days. And was, this was just back in 96. A world record transfer fee to bring home a Geordie who was England's top gun, had just won a Premier League championship and was going to stay for a decade and become the greatest goal scorer in the history of the club. That's a sensational way to complete the entertainers. Was there any fear... Um, from Sir John Hall when he's completing these deals we're talking about the most British the most expensive British defender Warren Barton mm. break the rec club record for uh, with Leathersford and then obviously with Tino and then on to Shearer I mean expensive money for back then obviously like you mentioned Shearer was the world record fee Where, when he's told that um, I, well I think it was actually Freddie Fletcher who did the deal for Shearer but obviously Sir John's got to sign the checks oh yeah and he's got to be told before it happens yeah. to, to get permission and he's, for he, it he's told right it's not just going to cost you a lot of money it's going to cost you the world record fee but I suppose with Sir John there's no fear this is right this is what we're going to do we, we've come here to play 
and we, we, you know we're here yeah to stay. and you've got to remember that the people that were behind Sir John as well uh, Freddie Shepherd Douglas Hall and Freddie Fletcher in in particular were chances and I mean chances in the nicest possible way I don't mean anything underhand not at all or anything like that they would gamble on getting it right and you know Kevin Keegan got it right you, you know and by the time we got to Shearer we'd just gone through the last hour that we've talked about or whatever with all those players and everyone had hit the jackpot some more than others okay Shaka Heslop didn't perhaps uh, solve the goalkeeping problem totally but he wasn't a flop who was bought etc 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 but Every time there was a gamble, right from taking Killer Kill Klein at the start, which wasn't a lot of money, but was a gamble in terms of age, etc., and it worked. And then Rob Lee, and it worked. And so it went on. John got bolder and bolder along with his manager because his manager was making a lot of right decisions. Um, Kevin Keegan, I think, didn't appreciate John Hall and those around John Hall until after he left Newcastle because this was his first managerial job and he thought it was always like this uh, because it always should be um, between a manager and an owner and he found out it wasn't quite at other jobs later. And we have done a podcast so on Alan Shearer you can go back and find that I think that was maybe the first episode of Gibbo's Corner. Yeah, yeah, um, we, we needn't go into that. But in great let's detail. talk about his arrival then you had all those fans out in the car park at St James's Park I mean what it did, and you had the world's media inside it. Um, oh, it was quite. What a day. It was quite sensational. I mean, it really was sensational. I mean, the way you a little insight into what Newcastle were like in 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 those days. Uh, I mean, they did believe they could walk on water. Uh, they'd also bought the Falcons Rugby Club, and they had Rob Andrew who was really rugby's answer to Kevin Keegan. He looked like the clean-cut choir boy that KK looked like. And he, he, he had been a wonderful England international. Um, and there was a great similarity. And I remember Rob Andrew going up to St James's Park. I was there and, and sitting down and um, the halls saying to him, what can we do to make an impact with rugby? What can we do? And I think it was Douglas Hall said, how about if we buy, we set a world record fee, the, play, the, the rugby had just gone professional. Let us set the world record fee for a rugby player. Who would cost the most money, Rob? And he said, Twigamala. And so, right, we'll sign Twigamala. They signed him for a million pounds. He was the first million pound rugby player in the history of rugby now, when there wasn't really transfer fees, there were mainly uh, wages and sponsorship. They signed him for a million pounds. And they sat down the same when they're here and say, right, right, Kevin, what do you think we need? Well, we need a centre forward. Right, who's the best centre forward you've seen? And we'll go for him. Uh, and it wasn't, well, yes, but he's out of our class or we can't afford him or we don't want to pay that much. Who's the best? And we'll go. Now, maybe if you start getting it wrong and later on, Newcastle did start getting it wrong after Keegan and after John Hall, but while... The regime still went on. I always remember everybody standing outside for for Shearer and that was a wonderful, wonderful day because this was a Geordie coming home who was a sensation and their biggest knock and bet to be a success possible. And we set a trend then if thousands of fans turned up just to welcome 
the guy here. And I always remember doing that a little while later uh, and and getting a big reception in terms of the number of people there for a little striker that come in who was called Michael Owen and me thinking this has gone absolutely crackers because not with hindsight, uh, if I'd had any say in that or my opinion had been asked and then dismissed, I would have said don't go for Owen because he'd had a yard taken off his pace because of his hamstring injuries, etc. And he was a, he was about that explosive yard and he didn't have it anymore. And that signing, we've had all the talk this week of the difference between Shearer and Owen. Who scored 206 goals for Newcastle and who didn't? Who made 400 appearances for Newcastle and who didn't? Who cared passionately about the tune and who didn't? Who did the two me love and who did they not love? Who sides Gibbo on and who sides he not on? I was just going to ask you actually about that, about the, the last week or so. Um, just to take you back, Mike Lone's autobiography set to be released. We've done a few civilizations of it. Um, and it's, it's kind of spiraled out on Twitter with uh, Alan Shearer and Mike Lone having a bit of a spat. Basically, Shearer, you know, going after one saying you were paid £120,000 a week basically not fair on the fans and the club for you to sit there and say you couldn't be bothered to play in those last seven, eight years of your career Owen and his book has had a massive go at Newcastle not a big club um, various things said about Shearer I mean what, what fans have you fans are deluded in the, what have you made of, of, of first of all the kind of the spat between Shearer and, and Michael Owen well we've known about it privately and publicly for an awful long time because Shearer, who had a lot to do with um, getting on to come here um, because they were partners on the field initially, uh, has always felt privately, without going into it, has always felt greatly let down on this short time he was manager here when Owen was skipper and didn't play in a couple of matches when he felt he could play because he knew he was going to get a free transfer at the end of the season and uh, get another big move and the big move was to Manchester United so Shearer always felt let down um, but for me there's there's no comparison there's absolute, as far as Newcastle United are concerned there's absolutely no comparison between the greatest English bulldog centre forward there has been in modern times who holds the record here who's a passionate Geordie and believer in the Geordie cause who turned down Manchester United and Ferguson to come here and in doing so turned his back on a shed load of guaranteed medals to come to Newcastle United and Michael Owen who I always felt when he was here didn't want to be here he didn't say so at the time but I'm not surprised to read that he didn't want to sign for Newcastle United he never looked as if he did want to sign for Newcastle United he appeared to the fans to be a cold fish who was distant, didn't really get into the club spirit, get a liaison with the fans, etc., etc. And this fella had been a devastating striker at Liverpool, an excellent striker. I was in the, uh, I was at France covering England the World Cup when, as a teenager, he scored that slalom goal against Argentina. Sensational. But you go and talk to Liverpool fans. They don't hold him in the same warmth as the whole Robbie Fowler and other people. He has never created that warmth amongst fans. And quite frankly, I don't want to read this book or see this book because I find it outrageous and affront to our dignity. We're all deluded, you know, as fans. We think we've got a half-decent club, etc., etc., and really we haven't. 
Well, if, if it wasn't and you didn't want to come, why come? You didn't have to sign. You could have waited and tried to get somewhere else. Sorry, not a Michael Owen fan. Wasn't when he played for us. Not now. Very much an Alan Shearer fan. Delighted to be so. And you know why? I'm a Geordie. That's why. There you have it. Now, just before I ask you uh, about your favourite uh, signing in, in that era, I have a feeling, Ooh. I think I might know you're going to choose. I just want to ask you, because there's always that rumour that goes around. Now, we have done, again, another podcast on those nearly men, mm. nearly signed for Newcastle United. And one name we actually didn't cover in that podcast um, was Zidane Zidane. There's always that rumour that went round that Keegan turned down the chance to sign Zidane. Is that is that something you've heard? Something you understand? What? Yeah, I, I remember hearing the hearing the name at the time, and initially when I heard these names, you know, George Weir we we know about, and Badjo in Zidane. I mean, you can't get three bigger world stars than those guys at the time. I mean, George Weir was the best centre forward in the world. Uh, Badjo in Italy, Zidane. Oh, what a player! What a player! And for us to be linked with them, you would think would be outrageous. These days, if Newcastle got a link with any of the fans, would say aye and pull the other ones, got bells on. Are you joking to me or what? That's the sort of chance, as what I meant using the word nicely, that Newcastle, where they sat down and said, who's the best? Well, why don't we go and try to get him? Shy Ben's getting, getting Correct. Let's not. Let's try to get him. And they did fly out. When they got Asprey, they were out trying to sign other people in, in, in at the same time. He wasn't third choice or fourth choice. Um, and yes, they wanted all these guys, and that's how they got, eventually, Shearer. It all felt he was a Geordie, but 15 million, um, world record fee, uh, and that's how they did it. So yes, they did go for all those people in that time. And when I look at Newcastle now, that's we might be in the same division, i.e. the top flight of English football, but that's where the comparisons end because we no longer bat in that sort of league. And that's why I've got, to this day, a great sadness in my heart that somehow Kevin Keegan and John Hall hadn't stayed in tandem a little while longer because when Keegan left, John Hall quickly retired from the scene it was still seen as owned by the halls but it was run by freddie shepherd and douglas hall with john taking part not at all and that partnership of john and kk which could be volatile because john had a temper and kk was stubborn it wasn't going to be all sweetness and light but that's the way business is when when two guys come together and uh, so it wasn't all sweetness and light but it was a wonderful time and if they'd only stayed together, what might happen to this club? Of Bobby Robson had been brought in to follow Keegan with John Hall still, what might happen? That's Newcastle United. It's always I, I about think, what might have been. I think that question keeps many Newcastle United fans awake at night. <laughs> so in a sentence then, if you can, your favourite uh, Newcastle United signing of that era? It's, that is so difficult, it's untrue. Oh, um, that's the important question. It is. Though. Well, I would have to say Shearer. I thought you might say that. Because he ended up 10 years and the greatest goal scorer of all time. And that's the greatest art. The greatest art and the most difficult art in football is to score goals. Nobody has scored goals for Newcastle United more 
than Alan Shearer. So as much as I, I love Peter Beardsley, as much as I love uh, Ginola, uh, because of their ability on the ball, I've got to go Shearer. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much for coming in, John, and taking us down memory lane. This has been the Everything is Black and White podcast. I've been Andrew Musgrove. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi there, it's Caroline Foran from Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast, and this is a Staycast from Acast. Please, please, please do follow the government's advice right now, which is currently to stay at home where possible. The sooner we all get on board with these measures, the sooner we will be all together again. While you're staying at home, here's a recommendation for another great podcast for you to listen to. I think we need a bit of comic relief more than ever, so why not try the Two Johnnies podcast, available on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts.